Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. America, a ten hat! Hey, at ease. Listen to me, America. Don't be that guy. We here at Phyllis, we done hit 100K subscribers in under a year. We're proving that we're here for a reason, not just a season, all right? Welcome to Fearless, the show that shows that God is still in the business of answering prayers all day, every day. And no, I'm not talking about the Dallas Cowboys performance of that old Starship single. Remember, we built this city. Y'all remember that song? We built this city. We built this city on rocks of blow. Hey, look here. <laughs> Don't say Uncle Jimmy didn't tell you so, but uh, I told you so. Also, quick question. Is it just me or has anybody else realized that Ezekiel Elliott's lips is about as black as the bottoms of Jason's feet. <laughs> okay, 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 I'm sorry, that was wrong. I apologize, the bottoms of Jason's feet really ain't that black, I got a little carried away. Anyway, listen here, they say be careful what you pray for, and based on that, hey man, fearless army, no, Jason was not attacked by a group of wild banshees. But hey, nonetheless, I digress, and today, we have two of the smartest guys in the industry. And I'm talking about none other than Mr. DHS himself. And I'm gonna talk about Delano Squires. You know, Mr. Darn He Smart. Y'all don't know this, but the D stand, y'all know what the D stand for, Delano don't cuss, okay? Anyway, and we also have the original show me bro, my guy, Mr. TJ Moe. Hey man, they're both live in the studio today. Woo! Won't he do it fearless? Yes, sir! Come on now. Listen, and for the first time on today's show, we have Virgil Walker and Miss Katie Fouts, and they're gonna be here to talk about, let's just say, gender bender stuff, okay? Anyway, man, it's that time, man. It's that time to act like Tulak. We need to hit them up. We need to hit the subscribes. And personally, we, I find it amazing that Jason would ask for five stars and not ask for five guys, but hey, give it to him. Give me the dilly dilly if you feel me. And hey, go purchase some merch. Get swaggy with it. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just put it like this. In the words of Snoop Dogg, okay? Check this out. <clears throat> One, two, three into the four. Let's give it up for the man they call Delano. Delano Squires, ladies and gentlemen. Give it up. Thank you, Uncle Jimmy. I'm grateful to be filling in for Jason today. And in honor of the general, El Jefe, I'm gonna light a fire. So just for today, just call me Pyro D. Let's go. Yesterday was Martin Luther King Day. 
a holiday created to honor one of this country's most important figures. Dr. King worked to heal the country of the illness of racial discrimination. His successors preferred to keep the body politic sick, often by fighting for some of the things he fought against. To put it bluntly, Dr. King's activist heirs have betrayed his legacy. Dr. King lived his life working to make America's deeds live up to its creeds. He spoke boldly about the hypocrisy of a nation founded on the equality of all men, legalizing the subjugation of some men because of skin color. His successors have a much different agenda. Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton shared Dr. King's roots in a church tradition that has always seen social activism and moral formation as intertwined. They should have continued to fight for the things that hold black people back from fully reaping the benefits of a free and open society. Good leaders adapt to the times. So those fights may have been over public policy or self-destructive cultural practices. Instead, they turned the civil rights movement into the racial grievance industry. Subsequent generations have continued the downward trajectory. The movement used to be powered by people who believed in equality under the law. They fought so that skin color would not be a barrier to opportunities. Now the movement is powered by people inking book deals and collecting millions in donations from middle-class blacks, guilty whites, and big tech CEOs. The worst part of this transformation isn't the fact that activists have gotten rich. It's that their ideas only improve their lives, not ours. They have a perverse incentive to paint America as a hopelessly racist country. That is why I can't imagine someone like Dr. King would support Ibram X. Kendi's belief that the only way to remedy past discrimination is present discrimination, and the only way to re remedy present discrimination is future discrimination. I also can't imagine a man who was killed in the midst of organizing a multiracial poor people's campaign would agree that black millionaires and billionaires are oppressed, but white store clerks in Eastern Kentucky are privileged. Perhaps the most important difference between King and the leading social justice movements today is the foundation upon which their respective movements are built. King and his peers grounded their civil rights work in the Christian scriptures. The women who started the Black Lives Matter organization are self-described Marxists. Their guiding principles never mention God, and their protest movement is not connected in any way to the church. This doesn't mean they don't have spiritual roots. Patrice Cullors, one of BLM's co-founders, said the following in reference to calling out the names of victims at protests. She said, it is literally almost resurrecting a spirit so they can work through us to get the work that we need to get done. BLM is built on Marxist views of class conflict and the belief that the material world is all that matters. They don't seek to answer the deep questions of right or wrong or good and evil. They speak in the language of resources and wealth, goods and equity. King and his Christian followers had a belief in God that gave them hope. They believed love could overcome hatred. Today's activists seem to be filled with anger and despair. They threaten violence when they feel they've been denied justice. King's activism produced optimism. BLM's activism produces nihilism. This is probably why it's so rare to find a happy radical. 
Dr. King also differs from today's activists because of his willingness to apply the same moral standards and loving critiques to African-Americans that he did to whites. After committing to banishing discrimination and segregation from every aspect of American life, King said the following in a 1957 speech in Birmingham. He said, and another thing, my friends, we kill each other too much. We cut up each other too much. There is something that we can do. We've got to go down in the quiet hour and think about this thing. We've got to lift our moral standards at every hand, at every point. You may not have a PhD degree. You may not have an MA degree. You may not have an AB degree. But the great thing about life is that any man can be good and honest and ethical and moral and can have character. Black democratic politicians, pundits, activists, and academics today would say this type of rhetoric promotes what they derisively call respectability politics. But Dr. King knew that you can't demand someone treat you as priceless when you treat yourself as worthless. Another lesson today's activists should have learned from Dr. King is that the rejection of moderation often leads to more radicalism. Is it any surprise the Black Panthers would choose a more radical path after seeing well-dressed, dignified Christians marching for equality, greeted with police dogs and water hoses? We are in danger of repeating that mistake. The left thinks white Americans have benefited from centuries of unearned privilege, and now they want to even the score. They work tirelessly and pay Robin D'Angelo quite handsomely to activate the racial consciousness of every white person in the country, whether their ancestors came here on the Mayflower or emigrated recently from Finland. Then they make whites the only racial group who can be attacked publicly. The Daily Beast declares, you damn Karens are killing America. CNN claims there's nothing more frightening in America today than an angry white man. And The Root publishes a race tutorial on the five types of Becky. White liberals love these types of headlines because they are burdened by race guilt. Their public self-flagellation is a purifying religious ritual. It grants them absolution from the sins of their ancestors and puts distance between themselves and the whites who are still ritually unclean. But what does the left think comes next when they call every Republican, whether black or white, a white supremacist. They are summoning demons they will not be able to control. Ethnic conflict and hatred are the rule, not the exception across human history. Wise leaders would heed this universal lesson, look to the past to show how far we've come as, as a nation, and correct course to avoid a future filled with tribal warfare. Foolish leaders would continue to inflame racial tensions to further their own political goals by exploiting by explicitly apportioning government resources and cultural capital by race. It is clear which types of leaders we have today. Our elected officials and leading race scribes think race, that discrimination under the guise of equity is progress. They are committing the ultimate act of betrayal to Dr. King's legacy. Our country has come very far. Unfortunately, the civil rights activists who lay claim to his mantle have fallen just as far. The NAACP of King's Day filed lawsuits to overturn Jim Crow laws across the South. Today's NAACP fights to overturn pro-life laws in Texas. The brightest minds of King's generation worked tirelessly to push legislation that gave black people equality under the law. 
Now Michael Eric Dyson accuses black conservatives of being mouth mouthpieces for white supremacy. And Ben Crump rejoices because the term master bedroom is no longer used in real estate listings. Both men claim America has failed to live up to Dr. King's dream. But in reality, they are the ones who betrayed this vision for the country. This desperation is a sign that the demand for racism far exceeds the supply. That is a testament to the progress we've made on the issue of race. Dr. King knew that racial discrimination was completely incompatible with biblical justice or America's founding principles. He gave his life to eradicate racial hatred in pursuit of a better country for his children and grandchildren. We are faced with the same task today. We have new challenges that he could never imagine, but we should heed his call to see our common humanity is more important than our skin color. If we don't, Dr. King's dream will give way to a new national nightmare. Whew. We've got TJ Moe visiting from Missouri. TJ, what do you think of my fire starter? Well done, thought provoking as always. Uh, I will tell you, I'm in real estate, so to Ben Crump's chagrin, we do still <laughs> use the term master bedroom uh, and master bathroom. So, you know, the, uh, it was early on in your monologue and, and column here. You said, Dr. King lived his life working to make America's deeds live up to its creeds. Mm. We are so far past that mm. in what they're attempting to do. You did a great job delineating basically what the aim of today's civil rights leaders are trying to do compared to the ones that we needed in the past. Um, I think this is a problem with every movement mm -hmm. in everywhere you go, but America specifically. We get to the point where we say we need to have lines. We need to have boundaries that are applied equally to all people, whether that is race or gender or sexual preference. We need to have lines. We should not be giving mortgages to some people and not others based on their race, right? right, right. We all agree on this today. We did not all agree on this in the past. Today we've gotten there. We have accomplished what Dr. King was looking to do. In the eyes of the law, we are all equal. If you can find me a racist law, please let me know and we'll go take care of that. I'll fight right there with you. But. The problem is you still have your civil rights active. I put them in quotes because they're not looking for civil rights. Right. And they don't know what to do, but they still, they're progressives. They need something to do. So to feel like they are doing something, because they look around and they say, look, there's still disparity mm. and people can't handle that, right? If, if, if outcomes are not equal everywhere you go, then now they're looking. Well, we can't find racism in the eyes of the law, but we, it's obviously still there because we don't have the same outcomes. I think the problem is, we have not figured out as a society how to transition from fighting for equal treatment in the law to taking personal responsibility for our own actions. And that, that is all people. I mean, right. personal responsibility is a, is a lost art. And so what, instead of saying, hey, look, what are the rules of the game? And how does someone succeed in these parameters? We've gone screaming past that and said, I don't care what the rules of the game are. There is a disparity in outcome and we need to fix that. And so now we've gone into crazy world instead of trying to figure out exactly what we need to do, which I thought obviously in your column yeah. is, is, was explained well. And, and, and that's why I thought it was important to bring up Ibram Kendi because I don't think any sort of modern intellectual um, is as clear a contrast to Dr. King as Kendi. Mm. Kendi literally says, that we need present discrimination to remedy past discrimination and future discrimination to remedy present discrimination. So, I mean, in, in many respects, um, the racial justice movement has gone from 
civil rights to social wrongs because when you tell someone, hey, you can't get monoclonal antibodies or you can't get into a particular school or you can't get a particular job because of your skin color, not because of anything you've done, but because of what people who look like you did 200 years ago, um, I mean, again, that's as far as you can get from, from King's vision of the world. So um, that brings me to, to one of the questions I had um, for you. My contention, and again, I mentioned this in, in the mono, is that if we continue down this path, right, where every conservative is a racist, no matter how moderate, no matter if they're a squishy, squishy conservative, right? If every conservative is a racist, um, at what point do the more moderate conservatives get pushed into more radical spheres, both of the internet and just American social life more generally? So at what point do the Mitt Romney fans end up in the hands of Richard Spencer? <clears throat> it's a good question. Uh, I, my contention would be never, so long as they have a home somewhere in between. And mm. so th this is why I'm so anti-censorship. As much as I disagree with Alex Jones, he should still have a, a YouTube channel that could be disseminated. Crazy people are going to find crazy. Do you think that just because you can't find them on YouTube that they're not going <laughs> to subscribe to Infowars.com? Right. That's still happening. So if you have a propensity to believe in conspiracies and crazy things, you're looking for that. So I, I, I don't think it takes a crazy racist conspiracy theorist to stand there with a flag and say, hey, they don't want you over there, come here. There's so much room in between. This is, this is why I think the fracturing of our corporate media is the single best thing that could happen to us. And it's a little counterintuitive, because if you look back, uh, what was it? MASH's finale had like 100 million viewers, mm -hmm. and it was something that brought us all together. Right. So we could all, you and me and everybody else watched that. It was all of America. And you'd say, well, it brought us together. It's good for us to be watching the same thing, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we have something in common and we can all talk about it. Today we've got Netflix, and there's, there's 10 million different shows. None of us are watching the same thing. Exactly. And it's like, I've got a list of 45 Netflix shows that I need to get to at some point. We're never going to get there. <laughs> and so the likelihood of you and I enjoying this, the same show is it's small. Same time. Yes, exactly right. right. And so we won't be talking about it. Game of Thrones was sort of the anomaly there. Where we're all sort of watching it at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it would be counterintuitive that fracturing is good, but I th actually think the fracturing is good largely because our corporate legacy media is all running the same direction. Exactly. And it's not the right direction. So when guys like you and I, you have obviously Jason Whitlock, Glenn Beck, Ben Shapiro, you go down the list, Jordan Peterson, people that are actually saying, hey look, there's crazy over here, there's crazy over here. You've got a home right here. Right. We believe this is the rational place for you to be. Come plant your flag with us, and we will try to move forward in a place that, that the, I think the conservative platform has changed just like the liberal platform has changed. Mm -hmm. But you still have your, if you've actually read about conservatism, you have your general ideals. So instead of running to your corner and, and making it race-based mm -hmm. or, or based on anything else, and we've gotten to the point where now it's, you know, we have... We have single issue voters. Yeah. I mean, Virginia just lost the entire state based on critical race theory. Mm. Oh, by the way, I'm glad they lost the state. I'm not glad it was, a, it was based on a single issue. I think conservatism is a winning platform and you need to plant a flag somewhere in the middle of, you don't want to be Richard Spencer, right. but you certainly don't want to be, even, even Bill Maher, you could make an argument, is, is to the right of center or right at it now, and he's a classic liberal. Right. And so there needs to be a home. That's why I think the, the, a place like The Blaze, creating a home for those people is as important as anything that's going on right now. Yeah, ab absolutely. I, I mean, I totally agree. And I think one of the things, you know, coming out of the MLK holiday, um, a lot of people have frustration, particularly on the left, 
because their thing is, look at all these people on the right trying to appropriate MLK when he would have stood against them on CRT or reparations or whatever other topic. But I think the same thing could be said for the left, right? And I think there's, there's a way in which we need to be able to um, be honest about our past, um, to be honest about our history and our heritage, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and I think when you talk about MLK, I think everyone prefers sort of a dead hero to a living legend. Um, but one thing that I think is important is, again, to wrestle with what all of these people believe, both at the time and then, you know, sort of compared to what we talk about now. So, for instance, on the right, there are people who say we believe in MLK's articulation of colorblindness and not judging people by their, char- um, by their skin color, but rather on their character. But then MLK also had some very far left economic views. He embraced um, socialism, he associated with some communists, and um, he was against sort of the military industrial complex. And I think there's a way in which we can deal with our, our history without canceling people, whether on left or right, because their views then don't line up with our standards of, of sort of conduct or morality or communication now. And I think that's a brilliant point. I think that's exactly right. I've wondered this, and I have not come to a conclusion yet, but I've, I've spent a lot of time pondering this. Why is it unacceptable to agree and champion a single issue of someone mm-hmm. and, and, and then also discard some things you don't agree with? Yeah. Ronald Reagan is one of the greatest, for, he is the conservative icon, right? Everybody still wishes Ronald Reagan. They just, they just did a... Uh, I think it was Pew Research Center, just did a poll on conservatives still, even after Trump. Trump's got a crazy following. <laughs> Reagan still outperforms him in right. the best president in recent history. He still had the, the uh, weapons issue with Iron Contra. Like, mm-hmm. He still said some things about, quote, assault rifles that I don't agree with. It's like, why do I have to embrace everything? I'm not Ronald Reagan, right. so I am not held to everything Ronald Reagan said. Why is it that if you are on the right and you agree with a lot of things Dr. King said, you have to agree with everything? Right. You know, it's like... It, it's a very dangerous thing. It also, I think, uh, it, I think it lends to the tribal issues that you're talking about, mm-hmm. that we all have to get behind someone who says, that, why do I have to agree with everything somebody said? Dr. King perhaps would not have been famous if he only ran on his economic policy. What, would point. we even know his name? Good point. You know, this is true about a lot of people. It's like yeah. they have their single issue that really resonates with people, and they resonate really well. Mm-hmm. So then, Dr. King, today... Turns out his, uh, he resonates with what he said more with the right than the left today, which is a bit unbelievable. Right, which is, yeah, it's, it's interesting how those things can flip-flop. And yeah. I, I'm very, I would never claim to know what Dr. King would think about any particular issue today. Sure. Because there are Black Panthers who, over the course of a couple of decades, turned into staunch conservatives. So you never know where a person is going to end up. But I think what, what you're asking for is the, the old adage, eat the meat, spit out the bone. Yes. And I think we need to do that. As we look back to the past, and I think the best way to handle the past is to learn from it, not um, relitigate it. Um, and I think that's across the board for any person and, and basically say, okay, what was the thing that this person contributed most to our society, mm. right? There's some other things that we may not have agreed with, and we are going to be judged by future generations by the things that we advocated for. And actually, that's a good segue because TJ, I got a second fire starter. Let's hear it. Mm, we're going to make the transition from king and race 
to the problem of the 21st century. So we'll, we'll get to some more of that next. So, Virgil Walker's on deck, but let's get right to the second fire starter. W.E.B. Du Bois famously said that the problem of the 20th century was the problem of the color line. We celebrated Dr. King's birthday yesterday to acknowledge everything he did to help the country resolve that problem. Now we have a much different threat to confront. The problem of the 21st century will be the rejection of the gender binary. In less than 10 years, the mainstream position on sex and gender has shifted radically. Caitlyn Jenner is out of the closet. All of the people who believe in biology have taken his place inside. The same people who have spent over a year telling the public to trust the science when it comes to mass choose to ignore the science when it comes to human anatomy. They also police speech with ruthless aggression. One wrong pronoun can get a person fired or fined. Here's the truth. Whether you're grounded in Genesis or genetics, there are only two sexes, male and female. Conditions like intersectionality don't change that norm, they reinforce it. So how did we get to the point where basic biology is treated as heresy? The answer is simple. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Our folly comes at a high price. This issue gets the most attention when it comes to athletics. Names like Leah Thomas, CeCe Telfer, and Fallon Fox are familiar to some sports fans. But the single most important job of one generation is to create the next generation. How can people who are confused about the definitions of man and woman make a new generation? What hope does a country have when most of its most educated and powerful people use terms like birthing person and the mass is not along in agreement like sheep? What, what exactly is exceptional about a country in which headlines like transgender man gives birth after grinder one night stand while transitioning and he gave birth, he breastfed. Now he wants his son to see him as a man running public uh, major publications. How long does a civilization have before total collapse when the following quote is accepted as normal? A month into pregnancy, Shade met his current husband, Jordan, 28. Eight months later, Ronan was born in October 2020. Now the pair are raising the child together with the support of friends, the trans community, and the, sat and the satanic temple church of which he's a member. How much have our views on the body and the family changed when the featured Father's Day essay on CNN in 2018 included this quote? But when it comes to lessons learned as a toddler, there are some things Sebastian wants to teach Jackson, father to son. One of them is how to pee standing up, something Sebastian does with the help of a detachable prosthetic. We are in a battle for truth. If we lose this, there's no telling how bad things will get. In his last speech before he was assassinated, Dr. King said he'd been to the mountaintop. He said he didn't fear any man 
and wasn't concerned about how long he lived because he just wanted to do God's will. We need that type of fearlessness. My desire to return to our senses on gender is rooted in a desire to do God's will. The lie that gender is all about feelings dishonors God's intricate design for man and woman. Encouraging people to embrace that lie is neither loving nor kind. The color line determined the society our ancestors endured. The gender binary will determine the societies our descendants inherit. We need to be willing to tell the truth, even if people hate us and call us names. If not, America will have a generation of confused, depressed, and mutilated children who wish we were willing to die on our hill. Whew. All right. Now we welcome Virgil Walker of G3 Ministries. He co-hosts the Just Thinking podcast and with his good friend, Daryl Harrison. Virgil, welcome, my brother. Hey, my brother. It's great to join you, Delano. Man, I've been a fan for a minute, so it's, it's an awesome honor, man, to get to share, share this platform with you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. So let's go straight into it, Virgil. Um, you, you heard my second fire starter. If you want to react with that, react to that, please, please do. And um, let's, let's, you know, after you do that, I'd love to hear more about the January 16th uh, pastoral stand for biblical sexuality and marriage. Yeah, man, that was a serious fire that you rolled out. And, and uh, man, I, I bet, like I said, I've been watching you for a minute and it's been awesome to see uh, how you're taking a biblical worldview uh, and engaging it, engaging culture uh, with it. And, and the reality is we need a lot more uh, of that, a lot more truth telling uh, rather than what we're seeing in current culture, because uh, it's, it's unimaginable uh, the ways in which we've actually abandoned logic and reason for feelings and emotion. Uh, we see that time and time again. If, if you feel a certain way in the morning, you wake up, whether your your gender was solidified at birth, if you felt a certain way, uh, you could change or, 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 or transform uh, gender. All these ideas are absolutely ludicrous and laughable. They are indeed the myth. Uh, but what we're being told more times than not is that you and I, who hold to a biblical worldview, uh, are the ones who are actually catering to a myth. But man, I, I just applaud you at, at, at standing for what you believe. Uh, Guys like you, like what we do on the Just Thinking podcast, my partner, Daryl Harrison, you know, we that, that, that's how we roll. We stand on what, what scripture has to say uh, about life and, uh, and and come what may, we'll hold to that truth. So, so um, can you tell us in the audience a, a little bit more about um, the pastors who, who preached on biblical sexuality and gender this past Sunday and... Um, you know, what, what, why do you think so many evangelicals who are bold as lions when it comes to speaking on race are as timid as house cats when it comes to speaking on gender? Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you asking the question. January 16th was a big day uh, around the country, uh, not only in America, but in Canada as well. And, and by way of a little bit of backdrop, uh, on December 8th, uh, the Canadian House of Commons actually passed an amendment uh, to their criminal code on conversion therapy. And like the monologue that you just laid out, it's important for people to realize that, that a lot of these ideas, a lot of these f false ideas 
about who we are as human beings, creating the image of God, these false ideas are being codified into law. So with regard to, before I get on a rant, let me stick with, with just the, the background of this. Uh, on December 8th, that, that Canadian House of Commons actually passed an amendment uh, to that criminal, to the criminal code on conversion therapy. Uh, the bill was called C4. It passed through their House and their Senate without any kind of real opposition. Not a single conservative member actually voted uh, against this uh, particular bill. The, and the bill went into effect January 8th. And so January 16th was the first opportunity for those who opposed the bill to, to, to stand against it. Let me explain to you a little bit about what this bill does. Uh, the bill actually criminalizes, among other things, and I want to quote here, it criminalizes, quote, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy or promoting or advertising conversion therapy, end quote. Now, if, if, you, if you're part of any church uh, or have any church background, you know that we're, we're in the business of, of, of saving souls, of converting folks from darkness into light. Uh, and so that particular uh, law takes direct aim at the church. In fact, in the preamble of the bill, it reads this way, quote, uh, those who believe Listen closely. Those who believe that heterosexuality, cisgender identity and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, genders, identities, gender expressions is a myth. In other words, what the Canadian law is, is aiming to do is it's aiming to say that those like you and, and I, Delano, who hold to a biblical worldview on sexuality, on gender, uh, on, on heteronormativity, if you will, you know, the, the, the new code word, uh, we are actually holding to an idea, according to Canadian law, that is indeed mythical. And so this this law passed on January the 8th. And, and uh, what it does is it criminalizes anyone who preaches or teaches or counsels anyone regarding God's design for sexuality and marriage. In fact, the, the, the criminality aspect of it says that if you preach or teach or counsel someone with regard to conversion therapy or, 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 or conversion uh, in any way, shape or form, uh, that you could be liable for imprisonment of no less than five years. Uh, and if you advertise that you do so, in other words, if you advertise that you're a church who holds to a biblical worldview on issues of sexuality, you could be you could be uh, in prison for up to two years. So realizing that this law was in place, our, our friend uh, James Coates, a dear friend of ours and of, of the ministry here at G3, but also he is the uh, master's a master's seminary graduate, which connects him to Grace Community Church out in in uh, Southern California with Dr. John MacArthur. Uh, Pastor James Coates sent an um, email uh, to Dr. MacArthur and let him know uh, and let him know about this bill and what was taking place. Uh, James Coates, for those who don't know, maybe your audience aren't familiar, he's the pastor there uh, at Grace Life uh, Community Church, uh, Grace Life Church rather in Edmonton uh, in Alberta, Canada. He was the guy that was actually imprisoned uh, for keeping his church doors open uh, during the COVID lockdowns there in, uh, in, in Canada. Well, he, he sent a letter to uh, Dr. MacArthur and Dr. MacArthur sent a letter to pastors throughout the country and around the world uh, that we wanted to take a stand for biblical sexuality in an effort to stand against what this what what Canada what what those in Canada were were uh, were were, were promoting uh, in the way of their legal code and so on January 16th pastors around the country here in the United States and in Canada uh, take a took a stand and declared that the state would not be the one ones to tell the church how it will function and operate and of course those in Canada did so at, at the risk of imprisonment 
That, so that, that's what happened on the 16th of January. And, and we're, we're, we're monitoring uh, what's happening there, trying to ensure that those pastors uh, aren't affected in any negative way. So a couple of things come immediately come to mind, you know, based on what you said just now. Yeah. One is this controversy around conversion therapy. And I, I know we've heard it for years, particularly as it related to, to sexual preference. But what it sounds like is if the, the Canadian Parliament thinks that every child is a, is a baby, so to speak, right. genderless, sexless, a blank slate, and that society sort of presses a gender onto a child. But the truth of the matter is they are the ones engaging in conversion therapy because they are the ones trying to convince children to convert to a new gender, as if they could, that is different than the one that God assigned them at conception. So, I mean, and and first, you know, I know you know this. The first fight in all of these issues is always over the dictionary. It's always over terms and terminology. So when you hear people say gender or sex assigned at birth, which we never heard 10 years ago. That, that was nowhere sort of in the or, public or, lexicon or th- 10 or years ago. Or like heteronormativity, heteronormativity. Like, like exactly. Exactly. So these are all terms that get introduced. They get filtered into the mainstream conversation and then sort of the masses sort of take them on. And I, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like my, my dad who was born at home with all his siblings. I'm like, no, no one assigned, the, there, one, there was no doctor. But right. the person, the midwife didn't assign their sex. God assigned their sex and everybody in the room acknowledged what God had, had designed. So that, that, that came to mind. But one, the other question that came to mind is, how long do you think before a bill like that gets proposed in our Congress? Mm-hmm. And if it does, what are churches and other institutions, because this is not just a Christian issue, obviously, Right. Other institutions that have held to the same standard as it relates to the gender binary for the last however many thousands of years, what are those institutions going to do and what are they going to need to do in order to withstand sort of this onslaught? Well, man, you said a whole lot there. Uh, I, I would go back to t- two things regarding what, what you said. The first, uh, regarding what what uh, the government is desiring to do with regard to la- with regard to language, uh, they're deconstructing language. That's an effort. That's that's the first thing that they try to do in an effort to insert uh, a new idea. They they deconstruct language. Well, we've got to we've got to we've got to uh, redefine marriage in, in order to deconstruct it. We have to redefine what it means to be male or female. In an effort to deconstruct it, I'd go. I'd, I'd only add to what you what you said, Delano, by by saying that what you're seeing happening is not only are they wanting you to to, to identify with with the idea that that birth that there's a an assigned gender by birth outside of what what God dictates, they're also wanting to replace parenting. Uh, they're they're basically mm-hmm. telling parents that they're that they're that they're liable for criminal charges if they d- make the determination uh, that to to act in a specific way regarding a child's uh, gender at birth. Uh, you know, and, and if they if they seek to to uh, to uh, obtain any treatment outside of uh, uh, of any kind of therapy for that uh, for that particular child, or bring them to church, or give them any kind of a biblical worldview, again, they too would be 
would be liable uh, under the law of of the land. And so those those two things are at play. The other question you asked, which was about what what is the church going to do? How how are they going to function? Truth be told, um, and it, it goes back to something you said in your opening monologue, uh, which was you know being willing to stand and die for what you believe. Uh, too few churches, too few pastors are actually willing to take that kind of a stand. Uh, too few pastors are willing to stand on the shoulders of of the martyrs of Scripture and say, you know what, Th- this is what I declare. Uh, you know, whatever whatever may come may come. Whatever wh- whatever will be will will be. I, I'm willing to take a stand. And and so too few churches are actually doing that. So I, I, I so for those who are and are willing to take the stand, I think you do what Scripture dictates, which is stand upon the truth of the Word of God. And and uh, and declare that truth uh, in a culture that actually that absolutely hates uh, the God of Scripture. So so Virgil, I, I was going to ask a, a question of, about parents um, and children and schools, but even before we get to parents, right? Um, the the last few years we've seen, uh, particularly with the issue of COVID, a lot of Christians have been talking about um, the role of government, the role of the right. church. The, the lines of authority. Um, and I really want to know for the people who've been tenderized to believe that the government, even self-professed believers, that the government is the highest authority and even the church must sort of um, fold under that. What are they going to do when the government says, we don't like what you are teaching your children about um, gender and sexuality? And because of that, we're going to come and take them from you, right? What, what, are, what are those churches going to do? What are those parents going to do? And how do we um, delineate those lines of authority? And, and how can Americans be equipped to ask the two questions when these things come up? By yeah. what standard and on whose authority? Like, how, yeah. what are some practical tips to 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 help us in that area? Yeah, I, bro, I think I think what what the point that you raise is real, and I and I, I can imagine I I'm, I could I can hear the the audience thinking I, that's Delano, that's far fetched. I mean, the the the. the <laughs> They're coming. They're coming to get our children. They're going to pack them up and take them where you know. Some 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 parents are saying, "Come come get my rugrats." Uh, I dare you to take them. <laughs> right. Some parents are daring, daring the government to come take them for a while and, and see what happens. But ultimately, that's exactly what we're doing when we send uh, send our children off to these indoctrinating encampments called public schools. Uh, that we're sending them over to, to government. In fact, uh, uh, you and I have a have a friend in uh, uh, Dr. Vodi Bakum who says that when you know if you send your children to Caesar, you should not be surprised mm-hmm. if they come back smelling, talking, and walking like Romans, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We've we've actually given our kids over to that government system. So so while it may seem uh, far fetched that that someone would come to the door and knock on the door with guns to take your your, your children, they've indeed thought through that process in the indoctrination camps uh, that that are called the public school system. Uh, what are we to do? I think we're to do what 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 Scripture has has called us to do, which is to teach our children the truth. Um, scripture is clear that when they when they rise up in the morning, when they lie down at night, as they walk in the day, that we have a responsibility to teach them the truth of the Word of God. And we've abdicated that responsibility and handed that responsibility over to the government. We should not be surprised by what we're seeing as our own children are coming home from these indoctrination camps, indoctrination camps 
calling us, you know, all kinds of racist and sexist and bigoted, homophobic uh, people because we've given ourselves over uh, to this ideological, uh, to, to this ideology that is antithetical to a biblical and Christian worldview. Mm. Great points, Virgil. It was a pleasure to see you. Good talking to Good you. To I hope you, we can do this again soon. We- we and, got um, you. Got you. Got to have me back, you. man. We got to. We got to bring my brother Daryl on as well, man. Looking. Looking forward to. It. Thanks so much for having me, D- Delano. We'll do. We'll do. Sounds good. Thank you, Verge. TJ, we think about that conversation with Virgil. Like, he's great. I got to start listening to that podcast. Yeah. And, and, <clears throat> I'm gonna throw a, a curveball at you, TJ. Yep. What would your response be if you heard that the local government where you live, or federal government, said, TJ, you and your wife can't teach your children what you want, right, according to your values, um, as it relates to issues of of sex and gender and sexuality, and we're going to send our social workers in to monitor you, and if you don't comply with us, um, we're going to have to remove your children from you. What would would the TJ Moe response to that be? I'd be in jail. I think you would too. I would. I would. We'd be I have, together. Uh, uh, we'll share a cell. That'd yeah. be fine. And then uh, we'll solve all the world's problems. Right, and right. We'll hear it. So I thought a lot about this. You and I actually talked about this at dinner yesterday. Mm-hmm. And, and there is no gentle way to say this. Um, the, so, so we're doing things at this point. So it's one thing to have the societal outcasts have fringe beliefs and then the rest of society to say, free country. Do what you want, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will we will look after your children if there's child abuse. But in general, do what you want to do. You know, if you you know if if if, if Leah Thomas well, is 22 years old, 21 years old, if if that dude thinks he's a girl now, you know, so be it. You can't compete with the girls. But do what you want. You know, Caitlyn Jenner's 50 something years old. Right. Like, dude, if you want to, okay, wear a dress. I don't care. But when it gets to children, mm. we are in a very different scenario. This is you. I'm not sure there's a more destructive thing you could do to your children than to encourage transgender behavior. It, this is, you, you are a, think about this as a, as a child, okay? I, I told you this story yesterday and the general expectations of, of what a child wants out of you. I've got an eight month old. She's just learning to stand up, okay? Mm-hmm. She's got all these uh, toys and things that she grabs onto and they're smart enough to the makers now to dull the edges so they don't get hurt too bad but right. they stand up she stood up the other day and she went to go grab onto something that wasn't there hit her face right on this toy mm. and i will never forget the look she looked at, at up at me as though to say why did you let me do that mm. i will never forget that look and if she could speak clear as day those are the words coming out of her mouth yeah the she was begging for boundaries and protection, okay? So biology is a boundary. So you think about a, a four, five, six, seven, 15 year old kid. You don't know anything about anything, right. nothing, okay? So what you are doing, the same thing that you and I are doing. We, we showed up to the show today, so what time do we need to be there? Mm-hmm. What's the address? Right. Where are we going? What are we talking about? We were setting boundaries of how do I succeed in this environment? What are the rules of the game that I'm playing today? Mm-hmm. And so, we know the boundaries set up structure, they provide order, uh, they, they allow you to function in complex situations because you can see what's important. Right. You know, you go through, it's like, it, it allows you to predict the reaction of others because you now have a set of expectations. Um, you come into the world knowing absolutely nothing. 
there are, we, we, there are thousands, millions, mm -hmm. however many years mm -hmm. set before us. We've been in America for 250 years. We have a general set way of how things go. And people know this. And you as a parent are going to sit there and say, I don't know, you tell me. Yeah, exactly. To a four-year-old. You, you tell me. Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt right now, they, they had a, a two-year-old daughter that decided at age two that she wanted to go by John. And now they're treating her as a boy. It's like two years old, and, and they're, they're being applauded for this. I think Kate Hudson is doing something similar, and, yeah. and people are being applauded. It is the biggest dereliction of parental duty that I can imagine. Absolutely. The, the statistic to this, I mean, this is, a, look, we all, you and I know structure is good, right? right. Family structure leads right. to the best success in the, in the world. Amen. The suicidality rate, the, att the attempted suicidality rate amongst transgenders is 42 percent. Wow. Okay. And this is found, I mean, there's a couple, a couple different places. The National Transgender Discrimination Survey is where that came from. There's a new study from the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, 42 percent. And it actually leans heavier one direction for, for whatever reason. It's 30 percent for transgender females, so guys who think they're girls. Okay. Right. It's 50 percent for girls who think they're guys. Interesting. Yes. There's a so, so I've, I've heard, not as it relates to transgender um, children, but even from Jordan Peterson, that women attempt suicide more, more frequently at a higher rate, but men are more successful. Yeah. Um, so, so that's interesting that, that you, that you mm -hmm. brought up that statistic. But I mean, I, I agree with you. What could you do 100%. that would be worse? Then setting yeah. up, just, just forget the rights and wrongs and morality of everything. Yeah. What could you possibly do that would harm your child more than setting them up to have a 40% chance of suicidality attempts? So, so here's the thing, the, the pro-trans side would use that statistic and turn it back at you. What they would say is um, the rate of attempted suicide is the reason why you need to affirm people in their new gender. They would say, if you don't, TJ, if, if you don't affirm Leah Thomas, then these are their words, she is going to be more likely to harm herself. Yeah. But I think the, the data shows that even after, you know, uh, transgender individuals get, you know, on hormones and gender reassignment, their rates of suicide are still much, much higher than, than, than the national average. So boil that down, that's bullying, right? Mm -hmm. Do you know who has some of the lowest suicide attempts in the country? Black I people. Folk, yeah, I know. I know. Who's been historically bullied? I know. So it's like... If you're saying it's because of how you're yeah. being treated, it's, yeah. it comes down to your personal stuff. So, and, and look, there, there is no, there's a lot of studies on this stuff. There is, there is some evidence that once they actually go through their hormonal changes and everything, that it, it drops a little bit. But the reality is, this is a question we should be asking. I think we asked once upon a time and we have gone away from it. I cannot figure out why this is not part of the discussion. Why is it that we're trusting your mind and not your body? Why is it always that, hey, you're, you are a girl trapped in a guy's body. Mm -hmm. Why can't it actually be you are in a guy's body and you're confused? And we need to dive into that and figure out why it is that you think you're a girl. And you, at seven years old, how the hell do you know what a girl's supposed to feel like? And that's a good question. And it and really is one of the only areas in which we do that. Because if a guy said that he's a guy trapped in another guy's body, mm. then he would get recommended, you know, yeah. go to treatment, go to counseling. Psych ward around the go corner. To, go to the psych ward. <laughs> But if he says, no, I'm a guy trapped in a girl's body, yeah. then he goes in the affirmation path. But there's one thing that you said that I really want to, to press in on about, you know, you talked about Angelina Jolie. My contention is that if the transgender movement was started at a Jiffy Lube, 
none of us would be here <laughs> because those people don't have the cultural cachet, uh -huh. the name recognition to really bend the culture in any particular way. But even going back, and, and I think you and I are old enough to remember Bill Nye when he mm. was sort of a science guy. But if you look at Bill Nye in, in the 90s and Bill Nye right now, two totally different people. Actually, I, I think we have that clip. Can we go to that? I'm a girl. Could have just as easily been a boy, though, because the probability of becoming a girl is always one in two. See, inside each of our cells are these things called chromosomes, and they control whether we become a boy or a girl. Your mom has two X chromosomes in all of her cells, and your dad has one X and one Y chromosome in each of his cells. Before you're born, your mom gives you one of her chromosomes and your dad gives you one of his. Mom always gives you an X. And if dad gives you an X too, then you become a girl. But if he gives you his Y, then you become a boy. See, there are only two possibilities. X, X, a girl, or X, Y, a boy. Mm. So that was old school Bill Nye, mm. right? I think we have a clip of new school Bill Nye. We play that? Take sex. We used to think it was pretty straightforward. X and a Y chromosome for males, two X's for females. But we see more combinations than that in real life. And even for people with just two sex chromosomes, hormones can vary wildly. So can anatomy. What makes someone male or female isn't so clear cut. How about attraction? Some people argue the natural thing is to only be attracted to the opposite sex. But in practice, it ain't so simple, kids. Some people are gay, some are bi, some are asexual, and some will take whatever they can get. <laughs> you know what I mean? I haven't seen someone run that fast since they tried to get Al Sharpton to go to a natural hair convention. So, TJ, I think you got uh, another point on this, and then we'll wrap up and um, head to... I, I cringed at that last. Some people take what they can get. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Uh, last point on this. Yeah. For parents, because we've just laid out that this truly... I, I'm not sure there's a more destructive thing you could possibly do to your child than encourage them to be a transgender, or even leave it open and not show them the boundaries of right. biology. There is one of two options, and, and I think you and I both lean towards the second. Number one is either these parents are unbelievably ignorant and just have no idea the damage they're doing to their children. Mm. The second and more likely option mm. is that these people are so evil, they're willing to sacrifice their children for their ideology. Mm. What about a third option? That they have a sense that what they're doing is wrong, but they're cowards. Is that a, is that a viable third option? That is, and that it, We'll hit something a little bit later on that. Yeah, I, th I think we, we're going to come back to that one. We're going to come back to that one. All right, TJ, great conversation. We have Katie Faust coming up next. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So now we're going to go out to Katie Faust. Um, Katie is a writer at The Federalist, the founder of the Children's Rights Group, Then Before Us, and also the author of a similar title book, Them Before Us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to join you. 
Thank you, Katie. So, so can you um, start by telling us a little bit about Them Before Us? Yeah. Them Before Us is a global children's rights movement. Um, thankfully, there's a lot of organizations that are defending children's right to life, their fundamental right. Um, we're the only organization that's defending children's rights in the family, their primary rights to their own mother and father. And this has implication for every marriage and family issue, from the definition of marriage to divorce, to reproductive technologies, to same-sex parenting. Um, and so we look at every issue from the perspective of the child and prioritize them in these conversations. So, so Katie, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, you not only are you a, a great follower on social media, I, I heard you on um, a fellow Blaze personality, Ali Beth Stuckey's show, and I was just struck by your boldness commitment to the truth and also I, I could tell that you know it, it was delivered with a sense of um, kindness and gentleness not not to dunk on anyone not to, to put anyone down but I think we, we need that type of, of boldness and fearlessness um, today so a, a couple a couple of questions for you what would a, a child focused sort of response to um, the affirmation-only approach to gender identity look like? So what, how would them before us address the, the issue of um, you know, transgenderism as it relates to, to young children? Yeah, such a good question. So for them before us, we primarily speak to family structure, right? And that actually, this whole idea of adult sexual identity, adult sexual desires, is actually one of the greatest driving forces against protecting children's rights today. Because especially in matters of sex and marriage and family, adult sexual expressionism is elevated as the highest good. But what that often means is it violates children's right to be known and loved by their mother and father. So for example, um, if adult sexual identity or sexual preferences involve um, attraction to the same sex, instead of forming a family around the rights of children to have a relationship with both their mother and father. Instead, the family is formed around the adult's desire to be attracted and in a relationship with somebody of the same sex. Notice that requires that children's right to be known and loved by their mother or father must be sacrificed on the altar of that adult desire. Um, we also see that in heterosexual couples, right, where there's a struggling marriage um, and the adults say, well, you know what, we're in love with somebody else or this marriage is just too much work. We're going to go our separate ways or we're going to um, we're going to repartner with somebody that's a little younger and a little bit hotter. And you know what? The kids will be happy if I'm happy. And so that's not the case, right? That adults need to form their families around the rights and needs of children rather than expecting children to fit into their framework of sexual desire and sexual attraction. So um, we've had throughout history, children lose a relationship with their mother or father um, due to tragedy since the beginning of time. That's not what's going on today. Today, children are losing a relationship with their mother or father because adult desires are being prioritized above their rights, especially adult sexual desires. So, so Katie, I, I thought of you a couple weeks ago um, because in the course of about a week or so, I read a couple of different essays. Now, these essays were from um, upwardly mobile, educated, professional women. And the one I'm thinking about was in the Atlantic who basically said, I torched my marriage, 
I destroyed my family, but now I get to drink a lot more white wine. Um, look at me, I'm empowered. Um, so a generation ago, this was sort of a, a recognizable meme. Middle management dad runs off with you know, his female secretary, leave mom and kids to fend for themselves. Now I think we're in the era of the eat, live, pray, Atlantic columnist does the same thing to her family. Everybody see, feels like it's empowering. Like what, when you see these types of articles, what is your initial thought and what do you think are the long-term consequences for society, and particularly for children, if we begin to see that type of abandonment as a sign of empowerment? Yeah, such a good question. And what you'll notice is those headlines are not aberrations. That is the norm. Anytime you're talking about issues of marriage and family, what you're going to notice is an obsessive focus on the adults what the adults want, what they desire, what their identities are. And it's always framed around what adults want to the exclusion of what children need and what they have a right to. And so what these you know, new articles about, I'm so empowered because I've left my, like that article, like the woman had an incredible life, beautiful children, devoted husband, wonderful home, all of that she acknowledged, right? But there was something about her, right? Some mysterious thing that eluded her somehow. And so she trashed, she trashed her whole life, including her children's life. So she could seek this elusive, I don't know, modern apartment with gross art on the walls or something like that. And, but the thing is that I dare you, I dare you and your audience to look at any marriage and family headline, any article that you see from a mainstream news, news source, do they ever talk about the kids? Do they ever focus on what children need, what they have a right to, how they're harmed through these decisions? No, it's always just a celebration, right? That this man has come out as his true self and now is going to be living as a woman and wonderful, we should get behind him and celebrate because this is what adult empowerment looks like. But it's always, it always costs the kids. And that is actually like one of the simple ways you can understand modern families. Modern family is code for child loss. The child always has to lose something mm. to be in that family. So one of the things we do at Them Before Us is we seek to, in essence, train people to look at all these marriage and family issues from the perspective of the child. What does the child think? What do they need? What do they want? What do they have a right to? What is it costing them for the adults to make the decisions that they're making? And ultimately, the answer is the same in all of it. All adults need to do hard things, right? The woman who's feeling like her marriage is a little bit boring probably needs to get some therapy or some counseling to spare her children of the life, lifelong loss that goes along with a split households and split lives, right? The adult who experiences same-sex attraction is going to have to do the hard thing and form their families around children's needs and not their desires. The single mother, the single woman, career woman who would be an incredible mother, she needs to do the hard thing and refuse to go purchase sperm and create an intentionally fatherless child. So this idea of children's rights, first of all, it helps us see the issues differently. And then it helps us make different decisions about our own lives. And that is prioritizing what our kids need over what we want. Mm. So, so Katie, go, going back to, to the issue of, of gender for a quick second, what do you see as the long-term prospects for family formation if outlets like the Atlantic and the New York Times make it so that you know our major institutions don't even acknowledge differences between men and women? So if, if we obliterate the gender binary, how are we going to form families in the future? 
Well, isn't it interesting that uh, sometimes the gender binary matters incredibly, right? You've got um, mm. laws in California that are requiring that there's a certain percentage of females on all of their corporate boards. We celebrate when uh, women of the right ideological persuasion are elevated to the Supreme Court, right? In a lot of institutions, the left seems to think that gender is really important. Oddly, they have waged a relentless campaign against the one institution that gets the gender balance exactly right every time, and that's the family. Mm. That is the place where they're trying to absolutely destroy the gender balance, and they've done so successfully, especially through the redefinition of marriage. I mean, what we did when we redefined marriage is we redefined parenthood. When you make husbands and wives optional in marriage, we are now seeing that mothers and fathers are becoming optional in parenting laws. So how is it that one of the greatest crises that we are facing today as a nation is fatherless homes and father absent? Well, now we've just legally said that fathers are optional. So how do we send that message that fathers are critical and fathers are important when our laws won't even use the words man or husband or father in them at all because to do so constitutes discrimination? So I'm sorry, like we're gonna have to figure out where we land here. Are we on the side of ideology or are we on the side of biology? Biology says that children have a mother and father. Sociology says children deserve them. And when you look at natural law or the five major religions of the world, it tells us that kids absolutely benefit from and have a right to their mother and father as well. I mean, that, that's an excellent point. And honestly, even the way we talk about fatherhood and, and father absence is, from my perspective, somewhat, we, we end up disembodying the, the, the family. Um, the way I think of it is, is, you know, fairly straightforward. I think of generations past, right? Um, marriage, kids, child rearing, package deal. Like a buffet, pay one price, you get everything. Now we've split it up as sort of like a, a, a la carte menu and, and we've, we've seen sort of the impacts of that and the, the crazy thing about it, Katie, is that our children know and knew the, 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 the right way to sort of put a family together. I mean, they've been singing it on the playground for, for generations, right? I remember when I was a kid, you say, you know, Chris and Jessica sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage. Now what we have is Chris and Jessica texting on, uh, staring at their screens, T-E-X-T-I-N-G. First comes sex, then comes baby, then comes marriage, but that's a big maybe. So yeah. our kids knew in, intuitively, they understood sort of the order, the structure, and the flow that brings man and woman together in, in, in a structured family unit. And now the, the leading minds have torn that apart and I think we're starting to sort of reap the consequences of that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, when you look at every major social issue that we are facing in the country today, um, whether it is teen poverty, teen homelessness, teen suicide, teen pregnancies, um, behavioral issues, youth incarceration, all of them have something in common. They are all overpopulated by fatherless children. And so if we can figure out how to unite husbands, men and women, before they make babies, and then keep those families together, we will decimate every social issue that we are facing today, right? 
And that's actually the whole purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is to grant the two people to whom children have a natural right, those adults, all their life. We've totally fundamentally misunderstood what marriage is. We've made it all about adult emotion, right? And adult desire. This is actually the greatest vehicle that we have for the protection of children's academics health, emotional health, physical health, relational health. There's no substitute. No government program is gonna be able to come in and do this. And not just any arrangement of adults is going to be able to do this. The magic happens when a child's mother and father commit to one another for life. So we are very far gone and we are starting to see it, um, I think drastically in the last couple of years as we watch our kids' health and, um, and lives come apart. Obviously much of that was revealed by the devastating pandemic response that our government had, but that didn't create yeah. it, it just revealed it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm with you. I think the, the breakdown of the family is by far the single biggest social issue facing this country. And, and, and I think one of the things that's happened over the years is that this issue used to be sort of framed oftentimes as a, as a, as a black issue, right? Because the rates of out of wedlock, you know, childbearing have been going up since the 1960s in the black community. So I think it crossed over 50% in the 80s and has been over 70% um, for quite some time now. But what you see is that among every sort of racial or ethnic group in the country, those rates are going up and for whites, it's higher today than it was for blacks in you know the 1960s when the Moynihan report came out. But the other thing, and and we started the show talking about Dr. King and how some of his sort of um, activist heirs have destroyed his legacy. Um, it is one of the most frustrating things to be a black man married to his wife, and have three kids, and promote marriage and family, which again is a universal good, and to have the people who are most likely to criticize me be other, typically college-educated black folk. That is incredibly frustrating. But what it does, it opens an opportunity that I think would, would in many ways sort of do Dr. King proud, where black men and white women and Asian men and Hispanic women can sort of work across the board um, because as it stands right now, if I say that whether in the black community or any other community, we need stronger nuclear families, children need fathers, they need to see their, their dads committed lovingly to their, to their moms and their moms committed lovingly to their fathers, uh, I know I'm more, much more likely to get attacked by uh, a black radical feminist than I am uh, a white conservative Christian. And I, I think what we have now is an opportunity to, again, find a common cause to work across political aisles and ethnic differences to, to really do some, some good for the country. Yeah, I 100% agree. In the first chapter of our book, we have a section on why Republicans should care about children's rights to their mother and father. And the answer is because we can't get anything that we want unless we secure this fundamental right. We're not gonna have small government. We're not gonna have low taxes. We're not going to be able to um, reduce spending on all of these massive welfare and like programs that we have until we first can fortify the family, right? Until we can first secure children's fundamental rights to their mother and father, honestly, through big marriage. There's no small government without big marriage, period. There just isn't. 
And we've got a section on why Democrats should care about children's rights. And that's all the things that I talked about. My my friends on the left are bleeding hearts, right? They desperately care about Black academic success, right? Or teen um, mental health or reducing poverty in um, economically vulnerable communities. Well, you're not going to have any social justice until you secure individual justice for children through their primary relationships. So I agree with you. I think that when we understand this, this is actually an issue that could unite left and right. And if it can't, and if it doesn't, our, our country is doomed. Wow. I, I love what you said there, Katie. I'm, I'm going to let you go, but not before. Uh, again, I, you said we can't have small government without big marriage. I, I, I love that. I love that. Um, Katie, thank you for joining us. Hope to have you back soon. Um, all the best, and, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me on. All right. All right, TJ. You heard our conversation with Katie. How do we get out of this downward spiral, TJ, as it relates to gender and gender identity and sex, sexuality, breakdown of family, fatherhood? I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but yeah. I know you can handle it. Uh, before I get there, uh-huh. I was, I love Katie, first of all, so you're going to have to get, show me her, uh, send me her Twitter account. Um, I was looking up some of the statistics that mm-hmm. you were talking about during that time. United Nations study in 2015 said 40% of American children are born out of wedlock now. Forty mm. percent. It was twenty-five percent in the black community, which was the highest in 1960. Mm-hmm. White community back then was five percent. White community now is about twenty-nine mm-hmm. percent. So we are in an unbelievable place as far as out of wedlock births. I saw this study yesterday. Gallup came out with it. Uh, and, well, it's a, it's a survey, not a study, I should say. But so Gallup surveyed X number of people. They did, last did this in in. Um, 2013 did it again in 2006. They said, what percent of people would say that it is very important for couples to get married if they have children? We are down to 29% of people. 2006 we did this, it was 49%. At least half the people were like, all right, at least half people wow. know what they're talking about. We're down to 29%. If you look up the statistics on this, and uh, the, this is pretty well known, so I didn't even bother citing these. If you are a kid that is raised with married parents, you're less likely to be raised in poverty, you're less likely to be physically or emotionally abused, Mm -hmm. you are less likely to use drugs and alcohol, you are less likely to commit delinquent behavior, you are less likely to have a teen pregnancy, and you are more likely to go to college. Mm. Just parents married. I know a ton of people with terrible marriages. Just being married allows your kids, so it's like, you know, to, to Katie's point there, you you have to start caring about your children. At some point, you have to say, I'm not the most important person in the Mm. world. It's not me. It is my offspring, and that is the future of the world. Like, the the best good you could possibly do is take some personal responsibility. To your point point about the downward spiral, this, I think, is interesting. And this, I I started talking about this a little bit earlier. The, The importance of, I think, what you're doing right now, I have a show spouting obvious truths. Jason does this. Daily, we have a lot of people now with some of our fractured media who are starting to do this. There was something, uh, an experiment done, I think it was in the 80s, called the Ash Conformity Experiment. Okay? So the experiment is this. They took one person who did not know what was going on, and they put them in an experiment where everybody else was told what to do. 
Okay, so they had six people and you were number five. So Portolano's in here. The game is rigged against him. <laughs> there are four people that answer the question before you, then you and another one, okay? And so it is, uh, the, the setup is, is it's, it is line perception answers, okay? So, so you have, it's on the screen now. To the left, you have a line, and they say, okay, which number, answer A, B, or C, one, two, or three here, which line matches the line to the left? Mm. And so the first few rounds you'd go through and you'd say, okay, obviously it is number two. Number two matches. And so one, two, three, four, all before you, all give the right answer. And you say, okay, that's, that is obviously correct. Then you would go, am I saying it wrong? I can't even see which one it is. Uh, whichever the line is. So then you yeah. go, and they change it every time. They okay. say, okay, it's number one this time. It's number three this time, whatever it is. And so then, as the game is being rigged against you, the experiment was how much outside influence will change your public answer to this, mm. okay? So they will give you the obviously wrong answer. So, so here it says A. A is obviously not too short. The, the correct answer. is right. too short. But number one, two, three, and four all said A. Mm. 37% of the time, the person in the experiment cracked and said, there's four people before me. I've got to be the idiot. Mm. I, I don't trust my own brain. The likelihood of all four of them being wrong is much less than the likelihood of me just being wrong. 37% of the time they cracked. How long did it take? How many rounds did it take the average person to crack? Did you know? That's a good question. That, they didn't get into that. What they wanted to figure out is how often are you just going to go with the crowd? Yeah. Okay. So then this is where the experiment got really interesting. They took position number three and still rigged, but they said, you say the right answer. So one and two said the wrong answer, but then number three said the obvious answer. Right. Four went wrong. The conformity rate dropped down to 5%. Interesting. So you had nearly four out of 10 people just going along with the crazy people who are obviously wrong because they didn't want to stand out, or at least they were, they were cowards, didn't trust themselves, don't know. And then it went down to, instead of four out of 10, it went on one out of 20. People. Mm. So the, how we get out of this spiral is people like you who are willing to stand up here and tell the truth so that other people, this is the other interesting part of the study. Yeah. When they surveyed later, hey, did that person who agreed with you have any impact on your answer? No, of course not. Yeah, that's absolutely right. <laughs> they said, no. no, no, they had warm feelings against them. They're like, yeah. no, no, I mean, I knew and he knew and then yeah. you know, that was good. So they don't even know that you are unlocking their courage, but you are, just by sitting up there. How do we get out of the spiral? We have guys like you, me, Jason Whitlock, the people who are willing to stand up there and take whatever criticism on a national level so that mm. they can do it on a local level. I tell you, people need to start sending their kids to University of Missouri, TJ. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah that, that's, some, that's some good stuff. Uh, um, speaking of college, I want to talk a little bit about Leah Thomas, the transgender swimmer at Penn, who is basically dominating the field. Leah Thomas competed, I think his name is William Thomas, if, mm -hmm. I'm, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. Competed as William for a couple of years, transition, quote unquote. Now it's competing as Leah, cleaning up the competition. Um, I have written about Leah Thomas. Um, I had an online engagement with Tony Reale from ESPN of you know, around the horn fame and pardon the interruption fame. And it was clear that there was a less than 0% chance that Tony Reale was going to say anything even remotely critical of Leah Thomas or transgender athletes in sports. Seemed like a great guy. I mean, sure, he's a, a, a great husband and a great dad. But if you are a female athlete today and you're looking to ESPN or Fox Sports or the New York Times or the Atlantic to have your back 
uh, when it comes to these types of issues, uh, you, you better look somewhere else. So wh why do you think that so few athletes, let, let's say particularly professional athletes who have financial security, or corporate sports media companies are willing to even question whether or not someone um, like Leah Thomas represents sort of an unmitigated good? There are, there are three names that come to my head when, uh, of people that have chosen to stand out. In the sports media, it's Sage Steele. Oh yeah. You don't hear too much from her. Yeah. Now, forget about this, I'm saying, because she got crushed. She steps out of line, especially at ESPN. I mean, I, the big lead did a survey years ago on sports media about their political leaning. 96% of them are liberal. 96% of the sports media. Okay, so Sage Steele is a unicorn. Right. Okay, I love her, she's wonderful. Um, she's willing to step out, and I haven't heard it. She may have already talked about this, I don't know. Every time she steps out, she gets crushed mm -hmm. by everyone. Not just, we'll say, the, the political elite or whoever. It's her own people. Yeah. People on ESPN feel it is well, their see. moral obligation yes. to yes. stand out here and just hammer this woman who dares to disagree with their political ideology. She's one. The big one that I think is happening and, and the person that you would put up and say, why is nobody else standing up is Drew Brees. Mm. Drew Brees went out on a limb. We'll say out on a limb, because I, I can't even believe this is controversial. Till to, still to this day, we'll never understand why saying, quote, I will never agree with anybody disrespecting the flag of the United States of America or our country. His grandfather fought in wars. Right. He's got a long history of military background. Drew Brees, who Super Bowl, uh, Super Bowl winning quarterback, mm -hmm. I think he's been MVP mm -hmm. uh, until Tom Brady played till he was 800, had right, the right, passing right, record. Right, I mean, he's, right. like, he's one of the all-time guys. We'll be a Hall of Famer, no question Absolute about it. First ballot. Late in his career, this isn't rookie Drew Brees. Late in his career, after he's already won Super Bowls, after he's already leading the NFL in tons of categories every single year, he goes out and says that his own teammates go to town on him. Malcolm mm -hmm. Jenkins mm -hmm. made a four-and-a-half-minute video about yep. how disgusted he was yep. with Drew Brees. And, and his, own, his own guys, uh, Michael Thomas, one of the best receivers in the league, mm -hmm. came out. LeBron James is tweeting about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like uh, Emmanuel uh, Sanders, Ed Reed. Ed Reed. I remember Ed Reed went to town. you're like... Well, Ed Reed made a video. What did he say? He said, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's basically... I see Drew Brees is still trying to hold the black folk down. Mm. You're like... Okay, so... If Drew Brees, by the way, I, I cannot in good conscience continue to support someone who will cower to the woke mob. And he yeah. did that. Yeah. So, and then he, they tried to have him explain afterwards because he has a social media post where he came out and basically apologized for just not understanding and not knowing. Okay, so I'm all for you, Drew, but also it's like, don't make it clear to me that you actually don't care about what you're saying, you care more about your job at NBC afterwards. So yeah. I, I don't wanna know that you, you think Maria Taylor will not approve of what you're saying later. So the, we have that. The other one is uh, Alejandro Villanueva, who did mm -hmm. the same thing. He was an army ranger. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't let him, when he was with the Steelers, come out of the locker room, so he said, screw that. And he walked out there with his hand over his heart. And then he backed off even. So one person after the other, there's not, now I don't think Sage has ever backed off actually, so I brought her up, not she's got seen. some serious courage. Yeah. The rest of them, one by one, have gone against the grain and then backed off and said, I'm embarrassed by my actions. That's a quote from Alejandro Villanueva. Yeah. I'm embarrassed by what I did. If you see the people, an army ranger talking about standing up for, your, for, for the flag, and Drew Brees, it, is there, outside of maybe uh, LeBron, 
in certain basketball players, is there a position and the top of the position that has more influence in the world than a quarterback in sports? If he's going to back down, why would anybody else step out of line and say anything knowing that their own teammates are going to crush them because they don't have any courage? Yeah, and and I mean, and and this is a guy who, you know, obviously gave a lot of money to recovery efforts after Hurricane Katrina, basically put the city on his back, won a Super Bowl, um, beloved in, in that city. And as you said, he folded. And I think, you know, I, I talked about reality. You talked about Drew Brees. Um, I think we have something on Michael Phelps, which, again, really <laughs> hammers this point home because, I mean, he's the king of swimming. So can, can we go to that? He said, I don't know what it looks like in the future. It's hard. It's very complicated. And this is my sport. This has been my sport my whole entire career. And honestly, the one thing I would love is everybody being able to compete on an even playing field. Now, this is a person who knows what it's like to swim at the highest level. Mm. And he must know that being a a biological male confers certain physical advantages. This is not how does a person feel about themselves. It's um, how is a person's body, how does their body function in the water? And Michael Phelps, I mean, the best that he could give was a, you know, VP-like answer. Um, Every day is the right day to do the right thing. And that that day is now. Uh It's like, come on, man. And to your point, one of the reasons why it's so important um, to do what we do here is because um, the courage, courage is just as contagious as fear. Um, the left is great at using fear and the fear of being canceled, being called a bigot or, or a transphobe, homophobe, racist, xenophobe. They use that fear to chill speech because they know if someone, as you said, sees Drew Brees get his head taken off, then the next guy's a lot less likely um, to do that. So, we, I mean, we, we just need a reinvigoration. We need a, a, a B12 shot of courage throughout the culture. As you said, Sage Steele is one of the people who's doing it, but too few are doing it, and I I think we're seeing um, what that looks like. I mean, just just think of, Drew Drew Brees is a guy who felt the need to make a statement in support of Jacob Blake, and and, an accused sexual assaulter who fought with the police before he he was shot. Thankfully, he lived. Again, I, I don't wish ill on anyone, but we're at a point where our sports and, and our athletes, our premier athletes, feel it's a lot easier to stand up in cases like that, where everyone is going you know, with, with the crowd, than it is to stand up for basic biological reality. And if anyone should know um, how important it is to, to sort of hold to basic bio, biological reality, it's athletes. So, Have yeah. you noticed, and I know we're, we're yeah. wrapping here, but... The reason I'm so disappointed in Drew Brees Mm -hmm. is because he cracked. You do not make progress if you crack. You actually make it less light. The next guy who did have the same courage as you now won't do it because you cracked. If you didn't crack, then you stand up and give the next person courage to do it. So it works both ways. it's like, okay, you, if you cower, somebody else will, but if you do it, somebody else will as well. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that the turn on this COVID insanity happened when Joe Rogan stood up mm-hmm. and gave everybody the double bird? Yep. He said, you people are nuts. Every day, go on, his, uh, go on his, his Instagram, Facebook stuff. Every day, he's going to town on the people on the left who are just gone and have gone insane. He's the guy that stood up 
and he's got, he had a good line uh, one time. He said, you know, what's the point of having F you money if you never get to say F you? <laughs> that's, that's how Ro Joe Rogan lives yeah. his life. Yeah. So he stood up. Michael Phelps, not that I think Michael Phelps knows the first thing about biology, so I, I didn't really expect this out of him. If we're going to Ryan Lochte, which we have not done, and Michael Phelps, who are together, for advice on what we should do for something, we're even dumber than they are for going to them for that advice. The general biology, I, we don't need to get too much into this, but the bottom line is, Men have a higher bone density. We have more fast twitch muscle fibers. We have longer limbs. We have um, um, our hips are specifically designed for locomotion. It is, it is for combat and running fast and that because of who we are. Women are designed specifically for childbirth. Don't ask me on this. This, this is actually, I mean, go read the science here. This is part of that is like, how, you know, what's happened over the years and right. how your bodies adapt. But the, the point is why then? It, I read a stat, and I have not. I don't have the site here, so you guys can look it up. You can look at at just the skeletal hips of someone, and at a ninety-five percent chance of of knowing if it's a boy or a girl, because hips have wider, shorter hips, and men have longer and more narrow hips, yeah. and that's how they're built. Yeah. So it's like, why then would we put all of the a man in there with every biological advantage over this woman, and say, yes, but he thinks he's a girl, and I don't want to hurt his feelings. The last part of this, mm. this irritates me and I don't know what to do about it just yet. There is a, there is a poll that basically says, uh, it, was, it was a Gallup poll that said more or less 62% uh, of people agree with you and I. Mm. And that is that if you are, the, the way they worded it here, uh, do you favor or oppose allowing openly transgender men and women um, to compete in, their, in, in the sport that they want to, right? 62% right. say you should play on the team that matches your birth gender. Right. So there's a lot of people that agree with us. Here's what's a little bit disheartening. We know that men are not gonna be affected by this. If a girl comes into a race with yeah. you and I, we're like, who, yeah. who cares? Yeah. Men, 72% of them say that you should play with your gender. Women, the ones who are seriously being affected by this, only 53% say you should have to do that. So they're actively inviting people to come, and 43% of women say, well, just, just bring them in. I mean, I know I'm gonna get my face smashed in here, but just Fallon Fox can fight against me, why not? Mm. You're like, what? Men should always be standing up for women. But it would, Abigail Schreier had, a, had an unbelievable article about this uh, several months ago with, with Leah Thomas, who basically said, women need to stand up for women here because Correct. guys can't scream and pout and say, hey, these, this man shouldn't be competing against the women if the women are gonna sit there in silence. And there's been a few of them that are willing to come out to, to Outkick and wherever else and say it under the radar, but there should be a team full of women in the Ivy League saying this is a rigged game. Yeah. You should go read that article from Abigail Schreier. I mean, a, a couple final thoughts, and I, and I know we're about to jump to our approval ratings, but um, you, you, you talked about, you mentioned Fallon Fox. I heard Fallon Fox in an interview compare the advantage that he has, and, and Fallon Fox, for those who don't know, is an MMA fighter, um, a transgender MMA fighter, so. Um, the dude fighting girls. Thank you, TJ. Mm. And he said, well, African-Americans have greater bone density than whites. Is that an unfair advantage? And I thought to myself, and I, and I didn't even watch the whole clip, but I just captured that part. And I said, here they go again. They can't keep their hands off of black folks. They're like Joseph <laughs> Rosenbaum. Every time one of these issues comes up, they want, to say, they want to grab for black people because they know that if you can wrap these issues in race, a lot of people who would push back would be afraid to because they don't want to get called racist. That was one thing. The other thing, 
um, when you talked about Abigail Schreier, I completely agree. I've been saying for quite some time, women are about to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging themselves right out of existence. <laughs> in 15 years, half of all the college scholarships for, for girls are going to go to boys. We've already seen it from the New York Times that you know, sort of joyfully announced that Dr. Rachel Levine, right, a transgender woman, so a born biological male who's deputy secretary for health and human services, is the first four-star female general in American history. And I said, same thing with the, the person on Jeopardy who won a bunch of money, the first female to do X, Y, and Z. Again, if women don't step up, if they don't get some courage, some sage steel courage, yeah. um, as I said, they're gonna diversity themselves out of, it, uh, out of existence. So, TJ, great conversation. We're gonna head to the approval ratings, and, and I want the audience to remember, TJ said it, I didn't say it. Fellas, the hips don't lie. So if you ever have a question, <laughs> the hips don't lie. It's my obligation or hate discrimination raising up your hands for freedom. Welcome back. <laughs> All right, we got Uncle Jimmy here. Don't sound so disappointed. No, I'm not. I mean, I'm look, I'm your biggest, Delano, I'm your biggest fan. I appreciate now, come it. come on, man. I appreciate Honestly. that. I appreciate that. Come on, you, you're supposed to be a little more energetic. <laughs> well, on second thought, no, you, 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 probably, show, Uncle Jimmy. you probably a little tired now. You, yeah. You're a little winded. A little long-winded. You and TJ been out here. Yeah, we've been chopping a little bit. So is this the part of the show where I tell you how, how well I did and you tell me how good I look and how good I smell and all those? Because I think that's, is that how that's supposed to go? For you, yes. Oh, well, thank you. But, and, and honestly, you, you did a great job. Truthfully, I, I joke and I play about you being a, one of the most intelligent brothers on the show. You came out here today, you and TJ laid it down, and you did a great job. Thank you. Honestly. Yeah. Uh, is there any chance you would possibly consider moving to Nashville? <laughs> I talked to the wife about that one, Uncle Jimmy. No, um, I don't want to get remarried. <laughs> Come on, Pat. <laughs> you sound like Corey. Me and my wife was talking about having a baby. No, Corey, I don't want to be a surrogate for you. Come That's on, funny. man, let's keep going, man. All right, so, so what do you think about um, Virgil, Katie, and TJ? TJ's the man. He, 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 he goes Sorry. without being spoken of. Virgil and Katie, honestly, man, just j j just to bring those two new faces mm -hmm. on here, mm -hmm. you know, truthfully, man, we have Glenn Beck, we got a uh, 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 Megan Kelly, we've got Tucker Carlson, we've got Jason, we've got you, man. We we, we have a group of people who are out here fighting a fight that I don't think, mm -hmm. I don't want to say America doesn't know that that fight's being fought. They know that fight's yeah. going on. Yeah, there's some voices, and just to hear these two new voices mm -hmm. come in here and drop some knowledge and say some of the things they said, man, it was it was. Amazing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was it was a real. You know, what's her name? Uh, what's her name is? Katie. Katie. Katie, Katie said, and th this is the one thing that nobody ever ever talked. About. She said, "Gay parents put their own personal needs over their kids." Yeah. And I always wondered that when I see two gay parents at a school, and I go, "You have no, you care, you could care less about your kid." Mm. That's, you, you don't care nothing about yeah. what your kids think about in school while you run around with your girlfriend. Especially, and I'm going to tell you, this is not going to turn into a, new, a whole other segment. I'm going to tell you what, I, what I've been seeing more often than not is parents, particularly mothers, who are in same-sex relationships, 
who have biological children. So they they used to be with a man. They used to be straight, but go ahead. Correct. And now they, you know, they they're with a woman, and I just. I, that's odd to me, but we'll, we'll talk about that another, another day. Um, so let's jump to uh, approval rating. Let's do it. Um, we are going to talk about the heirs of Dr. King, not his biological children. The mistakes? The, 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 the activists who came after him who have laid go. claim to his mantle. So exactly. Jesse and Al and Ibram and ta and all the other people who um, got make a living in the civil he rights and Ben Crump, yeah. All right, so job performance, I gave him a 10. Job performance? Yeah. Ain't none of them clowns you named got a job. I give him a okay. zero. Zero, okay, well, Uncle Jimmy. Character, I gave him a five. Um, I think a lot of these people are very low character because I personally believe that they often say things that they don't actually believe, and I can't stand that. Uh, have you ever seen Al Sharpton in 19... 19- 77? That was Big Al. Big Al. Perm, you, ever seen, perm, you, you, you ever seen Big Al with the oh, yeah. perm? Yeah, with the velour tracksuit. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Are you going to tell me that wasn't a character? Good point. I'm not sure that's what they mean when we say character here, Uncle Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. You know, Uncle Jimmy, he's, he's wired <laughs> a little different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on. All right, authenticity, zero. They f- Ain't none of them clowns the... about that life, man. Yeah. Not None of them people care about the people that they claim to care about. Mm. They care about their pockets. Yeah, that's true. That's Hold true. On. So zeros across the board. It factor. So I'm going to give him a 20 because I think that these people have shown the ability to have staying power over a fairly long period of time. Um, in, a, in a perfect world, all of them would have been put out to pasture. They would have been rendered completely irre- irrelevant and obsolete. But the fact that Michael Eric Dyson can go on Jory Reed's show and accuse the incoming Lieutenant Governor of Virginia of being a black mouth parroting white supremacist ideas shows that he must have some it factor. So I give him a 20. Uh, personally, I don't know what it is and if whatever it is they got, I don't want it, they can keep it. I give him a zero. I don't want no parts of them. So if I tally that up, <laughs> I'm at a 35, you're at a 25. I think we agree. The heirs of Dr. King's legacy are a complete dumpster fire. Is that right? Missed miserably. Oh, boy. That's not good. Oh, real quick before we go, real quick, because I didn't get a chance to ask you this. You know that the song, it says, uh, it's the land of the free, right? Mm -hmm. And the home of the what? Brave. Chiefs! Let's go, yo! I think I hear the theme song playing. We'll see y'all tomorrow. Lord willing, Come Jason, on, man. Jason will be back. He you could, thought I was going to forget about that? Come on, man. Listen to deal with Uncle Jimmy with this stuff, man. I'm out of here. Yeah, man, you had TJ sitting in my chair.
for the white sign Looking like it's my time Feeling all kinds of freedom These words are our religion All regrets and our decisions We don't want to go to heaven with freedom It's my obligation No hate, discrimination Raising up your hand